Hello everyone. This is another episode with Candice Crack, and this uh, today we have Anthony. Hello, how are you? Hi. How are you going, Oscar? Well, thanks a lot. And on the other side, we have Richard. Richard, how is your day today? It's not too bad, Oscar. Uh, as you know, it's a Thursday. I'm tired, but we'll do our best to get through this. It's a podcast. People don't know what day it is. Oh, yeah, but it doesn't stop. Doesn't help my brain work. <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> so we'll we'll see how we go. It doesn't really matter, Richard, because we're going to talk with uh, Anthony. Anthony's in the spotlight today. Um, Anthony, t- uh, tell me a little bit more about your background. Hmm. Um, so I guess in terms of how it relates to the context of what we talk about today, my background was in. Um, I actually studied at uni. I studied psych and I studied biology, um, specifically ecosystems. Uh, and uh, that were, that was all well and good. It was all very fascinating. But then at a certain point, I uh, I had to you know make a decision on which to pursue. Uh, and I guess in reflection, um, uh, psych was fascinating. But then there was also this bit where like it's also a lot of people wearing a lot of dark clothes, having very dark conversations. That's what got through to me, and um, and and it all kind of seemed very uh, unsettling to me that it was all just talk, right? Um, there was nothing measurable, tangible about it. Um, whereas you know, science, biology was, um, and and so I ended up pursuing that. Um, the that then led to kind of well, life in a lab. I thought I was going to be David Attenborough. It didn't turn out like that. Um, I wanted to be in exotic locations around the world, and that was—I could see that was never going to happen. I couldn't handle the, the lab work, so I upped and left, and I ended up spending my time around the world. Um, if you moved to Vietnam in the early 2000s, um, and then uh, kind of discovered business. Uh, up until that point, I thought business was just money, um, but then I discovered that that's finance, and actually, what business is is getting a whole bunch of people together to work on something that that they can't really achieve as an individual. Um, and then that really got my interest because then it really struck me as what we're talking about is psychology, right? It's actually group psychology and business psychology. Um, that then led me to spending a lot of time with um, business people and then later in South America as well, uh, trying to, to essentially ask them like, like simple questions like, okay, because I was in education. So I've been a teacher now for a long time. Um, and I would ask them like, okay, so what's actually going, th- what's what's challenging? What's tough about work? What makes things hard? And I, I guess I boil it down to the idea that what it was was people, uh, they were things that we were never taught in school, pretty much. Um, soft skills, communicating with people, handling stress, handling um, I don't know, time management to a degree. Uh, how to get your point across to other people, um, all of these kind of things. So I said, okay, well, let me go away and bury my head in the um, in the research and come back, and we can have all these fascinating conversations about it and workshop it and talk and um, and and I think at that point uh, I that became a learning for me because suddenly I was around some very interesting, smart people who were um, who were sharing their knowledge and experience with me and that kind of shifted things so look fast forward mate um now it's 2020 for the last sort of uh, 2021 so for the last uh almost five yeah five years now um i've been director um of my own business or co-director with with my business partner um and what we do is it's ostensibly we're an eap like an employee assistance program but the the but i say ostensibly because what we came into this whole area to do was to improve how mental health is done inside of organisations. Because uh, I don't think you need to look too deep into the too too deep into it to realise that it's mostly reactive, and it's not just in business. It's like as a as a nation, how we not even as a nation. I think globally, we do things very reactively in in mental health, far more so than other areas of health. Um, and so that's kind of my guiding philosophy right now. It's like, okay, well, what does it take? How do we build better systems inside of organisations uh, to facilitate 
better mental health? How do we reduce risk? What, what can be done at an individual level and at a group level? And then, you know, what are the levels? Let's keep, keep swimming upstream, keep asking the questions and trying to find the levers upstream. That's, that's where I'm at, Matt. Uh, so what, what does that look like, Anthony? What kind of conversations are you having um, to get people to be more proactive about mental health? Right. So that that's a, there's, firstly, you're talking with many different people. So to give you an idea of what, who I'm going to be talking with for the next sort of a week, I'm going to be talking with uh, some uh, top level senior management inside of a tech startup. But then I'm also going to be uh, spending some on the ground walk and talk time with grave diggers. Right. So these are they're two very different conversations, <laughs> as you might imagine. Um, the conversation, I okay, so so and this kind of goes back to uh, really what happens when you're an outsider, like I was when I came into this um, into this space. Is, is that you end up asking really what would be called dumb questions, but actually what they are are first principles questions. And you ask these questions like, oh, okay, so people aren't using a service. Okay, why not? And then you just keep saying, okay, why? And it's that childlike why curiosity that leads you into some really interesting things. Like you discover that, um, you know, a lot of the reasons that, well, one, one of the huge reasons is the clinical language gets in the way. It's off-putting to people. Um, there is this idea in a lot of the everyday people like us that, that mental health is is this um, very specialised um, domain that can only be spoken about or talked about uh, by uh, specialists, and it would be dangerous otherwise to to talk about it, or it's just it's off limits. Um, and by taking away, I think by humanising it. And instead of using and the big secrets being getting rid of clinical language, to have those conversations with people uh, and, and talk about, uh, as opposed to saying, you know, hey, what's wrong with you? Saying, hey, what's going on for you? Let's talk about life. Let's talk about the complexities and let's talk about how tough life can be from time to time. And once you start talking about it in that way, it becomes a lot more relatable to people. And I think the you, you get the cut through. And, and do you know what? That works at the CEO level as well. If you can talk about it in far more human relatable ways. Hmm. So you're probing into the, the problem of jargon, basically. And I think you, you almost said the same thing when, when you were trying to understand business, is, hmm. is you're trying to get people to communicate in a way that's meaningful for them to, to do uh, useful work uh, and yeah. get through perhaps, you know, in, in the business stuff, you're trying to get through the, the business school kind of jargon and, and mm -hmm. succeeded, I hope, I guess. And, and now perhaps you're doing the same thing in the mental health space. Yeah. Well, you know what, actually, Richard, it's empowering to people. Like if the one of the issues around the clinical languages, and we've all felt this, when, okay, go ask IT for support, right? And IT starts using IT jargon. Um, you suddenly very much feel people feel very intimidated very quickly and they tend to shut down and shut off and they go, you know what, I don't know. Um, and they just handle it back. Um, I think it's a similar dynamic that's going on with mental health. So that once you give people, the, uh, once you start talking about it in a language that they can use and through concepts and models that they use, then they suddenly have some uh, agency in what they can do and some power of what they can do. And that's huge because um, a big part of, if you want to talk about proactive, well, it's about, okay, it's actually a big part of it's empowering people with knowledge uh, and, and, and showing people that, you know, um, you might not be a mental health professional, but I tell you what, you're probably the, you, you're the closest thing to pro professional of your own life, right? You, you are the expert of your life um, and you have knowledge and wisdom that can be used. Um, and that is a, uh, yeah, as I said, it's empowering for people. So, so alongside the jargon, there must be anxiety that you're, you're, I mean, obviously there's, 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 you know, mental health and anxiety are quite, quite heavily related, but there's even the anxiety about the anxiety. I don't know how to talk about this. I'm, I don't understand the language, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. is that, is that a fair, that's a fair summary of, of the kind of stuff you're coming across? Yeah. Yeah. I'd also, so yes, that's the short answer. Mm -hmm. The other answer is, I think it's also changed. 
you know, we have done so much in terms of mental health awareness, at least here in Australia. It's it's everywhere. Um, it's thorough and it's been really helpful. Um, I also think that um, maybe it's a, a, a consequence of me being in the field for this long, but I'm also looking at it going, oh, I've got mental health awareness fatigue. Um, and I'm also impatient for action. And so my question is, okay, um, are you okay is a great question to ask. What I really want to know now is like, okay, so if someone says they're not okay, what systems do you have in place inside your organisation? What, 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 ha what happens then if someone says they're not? And I think that's actually the next step that needs to happen. Um, and to be honest, can't happen soon enough um, because um, all awareness and no action, I think, can have a blowback effect um, where people sometimes it becomes tokenistic um, and uh, uh, gets people a little bit jaded about it all. So, yeah, I guess that's where I'm at now. It's like, okay, enough talk. I want, I want action. Um, and that's essentially at the basis of a lot of what I do. It's like figuring out how to do, make better systems and get better mental health action inside of organisations beyond just awareness. So I'm going to probably ask you to go on a little bit of a storytelling journey with us now, Anthony. So, so, okay. so, so from the action, so I want to look at the, uh, some actions that you've actually seen. So some examples of, of success stories at that, that, that level. And then as we, as we go through, you know, where would you like that to go? Um, so just start off with some examples. What actions, successful actions have you seen? Um, you know, what, what kind of outcomes were there? Mm -hmm. Now, the one that comes to mind um, was early March last year, 2020, um, COVID blew up um, around the world. And it, it was this, um, it was on our doorstep, it was emerging around the world. And it was a, a period of considerable anxiety and uncertainty. Uh, and very quickly, uh, and I have to give full credit to my business partner, he, he just said, now we act. Because yeah, I, to be honest, I think I was like 90% of people out there, you kind of, in all of that, you, you kind of become a spectator and you sit there and you go, oh, wow, oh, this is interesting. You don't actually do anything, but he like switched into gear and uh, he just said, you know, now we need to switch into gear. Now we go. Um, we reached out to all of our clients and we started working with each of them, asking the question of like, okay, where are you at? What does it look like? Um, how might we go about addressing or communicating with your communicating with the staff or interacting with the staff going forwards and uh given the restrictions as well like the ge geological geographical issues of people not being in the office people being housebound and all the rest what came out of us was we ended up doing uh pretty much weekly debrief sessions with people um for their organizations and they were just drop-ins and it was really interesting because um this was not on the face of it mental health right what it was was a third space right so it wasn't it wasn't work it wasn't home it was this other place you can go drop in and share thoughts and um i'd often have like a psych or a counselor alongside and and myself sometimes i was there sometimes i wasn't um but facilitating these discussions with people and essentially uh having a it would start off as just a chat really about, okay, so what's been going on for you this week? And inevitably people start talking about the activities that they have been doing. But then the question then becomes, okay, yeah. But, okay, so how's that impacting you? How, how have you been impacted this week? And actually getting people to just dial in on their emotional experience, their inner world of how this, and, and often raising that awareness. Um, it's very easy to just, become blasé and be on autopilot, not be aware of that. Um, but your behaviour belies what's going on under the surface. And so then the question, then the question started to become, okay, we start talking about, okay, well, what are the experiences that you're experiencing? And so we start sharing that and normalising it. It wasn't, there was no clinical language going on, but it was just talking, helping people to understand that these impacts are taking place inside their bodies um, and inside their minds and between their friends and helping them ultimately make sense. And I think that's a big part of it when you're facing uncertainty. Um, you know, we're humans, we're sense-making machines. We need that set, we need to make sense of our world. If we don't, it's, it's, it's really disturbing and um, discombobulating, right? Like you just, 
you can't make heads of tails of things and you can't move forwards. Um, and so those were really powerful. And then, you know, at the end, we'd often work in with um, tools and techniques that came from the world of like cognitive behavioral therapy, like helping people kind of um, um, uh, not catastrophize about the situation. Um, because ultimately, you kind of got to do the work. The word I use, you got to digest your emotions. Um, you kind of got, because you either become overwhelmed and they run the show. It's very easy for emotions to, they're, they're, they're addictive. They're quite powerful and they can run the show. Alternatively, um, the other option is, is that you don't want to feel those feelings. So you press it down and you suppress it. And the problem is you can't just suppress one feeling. You, you tend to suppress them all and then you feel nothing. And so this, this um, weekly check-in with people, it was it was wonderful because it was an emergent, you know what? It was an emergent situation. There was no best practice in this kind of scenario. There was no prescription that could be given. Um, if this was very much about working with people in a group to have these conversations, to make sense of it. Um, and it allowed them as a group. And yeah, and this went on for nine months. Like, you know, remember these, we had troughs. So we had hard lockdown here in Victoria, Australia. Um, but then we got released and, but then there was that second lockdown and that was really interesting because, you know, in the first lockdown, we had this real sense of like national camaraderie, right? Oh, we're all doing it together and oh, we're so smart. Look at us. And there was a sense of like, oh, it's a little bit exciting still. And oh, this is dramatic. Um, but we're going to get there because we're all in it together. And then uh, in June, um, I remember us talking about it and saying, you know, let's not set ourselves up for failure as well. Like let's stay try and be as rational and, and see this as cool, calm and collective as possible. And then of course, um, what happened pretty soon after is we went into a second lockdown and the shift in people was dramatic. And I think it was best encapsulated by one of the psychs who said like, um, they, there is a, a lack of hope, right? So it's a really interesting thing that um, there was a sense that there was no light at the end of the tunnel. And, um, and so we had to work with that. We had to work with that. Uh, so that's what I mean. Like when, when I talk about, you know, when we, yeah, okay. This whole idea of an EAP. Yeah. Okay. We've got mental health support for people around it, but there's so much else that can be done. Um, but you've got to listen to the people and you've got to work with people. It's not something that you can really prescribe to groups of people it's again it's an emergent relationship it's a relationship which then from that emerges solutions together and and it's that it's also that part of the idea that you're not going through it alone um because you know humans we can suffer we can endure a great deal of suffering and tolerate and overcome a great deal of suffering when we do it together but it's when you think you're alone that's when it is um you know a hell onto itself um, and so I think it's these kind of, um, it requires a little bit of creativity. That's the reality to, to kind of overcome novel challenges. Yeah. Um, you cover quite a few areas there, uh, Anthony. Um, one thing that you kind of, uh, meant, mentioned at the, at, the, at the end, I think was, uh, the lack of hope that you observed, uh, in the second, uh, lockdown. Was it really a lack of hope or that people were unable to deal with, say, anxiety? Um, anxiety is one of those elements in it. Um, I, I think I think there was... So, look, lack of hope was definitely in there. Um, and it actually boils down a lot to what motivates humans, uh, I think. And it, it's this idea that we are goal-oriented creatures. Um, we like to have something we're moving towards. And suddenly what that second lockdown did, because the numbers seemed to be spiraling out of control and nothing seemed to be able to, to didn't seem to be able to tolerate that, um, that suddenly put a lot of obstacles in the way and there was no clear path forwards. Um, and one of the biggest indicators of one of the biggest motivators for us is a sense that we're moving forwards on things and if we're not moving forwards then um, we become lost demotivated incredibly frustrated um, 
And I think that's what was a big part of that is that uh, there was no clear path forwards. Um, mm. So in terms of anxiety, yeah, there was heaps of anxiety, Oscar, and justified to a degree, mm. right? Like, like this is the other thing. And I think, um, uh, you know, so in the, in the, um, uh, in the drinking dialogue session, that the area that I'll be touching on is, is this idea of um, this, this lens of evolutionary psychiatry, which says that, you know, okay, well, hang on a minute. Um, we should probably step back from this idea that anxiety bad or depression bad um, because, which is not to say they're not, they absolutely are and they can be absolutely debilitating. But there's a question before that, which is more, which is, which is kind of quite interesting and profound, which is to say, okay, well, the, the issue is these things exist across our species. Uh, these conditions exist across our species throughout our DNA as well. They're so prevalent that it does raise the question that um, given their prevalence, how do we explain that they survived through natural selection? Um, anything that exists with such a degree of prevalence, uh, it, it's, it's a reasonable assumption to say, okay, then that must have served, not necessarily now, but at least have served a function, um, which is not to say anxiety and depression serve a function, no but the underlying traits that cause it, which is fear, right? Threat detection. Um, uh, those must have had a, must have uh, delivered a evolutionary benefit to the species um, at some point in the past. And I find that this is a very powerful question because um, we stop asking the question of, uh, or we stop framing this as a war because we love to go to war on verbs and nouns. Yes, we like to have a war on drugs and we like to have a war on uh, loneliness. We like to have a war on these things. And, and, and so, and I think right now, well, the debate has been, the conversation has been dominated by a lot of talk around a, a war on depression. And there are organizations out there who are like, we wanna rid the world of depression. But before we get there, let's just step back and take a look and say, um, is there something, what, in, in what situations may have these been beneficial to us as a species? Um, and that raises some really interesting questions. Um, yeah. uh, so I, 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 I've, there's numerous directions I want to take this into. Uh, but first of all, let, let's, let's go into the historical uh, stuff that I'm interested in in that we, we've sort of pathologized, for me, um, agony has been pathologized as anxiety and melancholy has been pathologized as depression. I mean, are, are you drawing back to, um, to, to those ancient sort of understandings of, of mm. the terms? Uh, yeah. And if so, how are, you, how are you trying to get us to rethink them? Well, um, firstly, I'll just put it out there. It's not, um, I'm, I'm merely the vehicle for people much wiser than myself. Um, there's um, some great minds out there and I'd probably point people to the work of Randolph Ness um, or Nessie, um, N-E-S-S-E. -S -S -E. Wrote a fantastic book called um, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. Um, and he's a founder of the Evolutionary Psychiatry Association. He is himself a psychiatrist. Um, and he himself found himself running into walls, brick walls, um, just confounded by, like, why are so many people suffering from these issues? And it's once you kind of step back and you look at it through an evolutionary lens and you ask that question, well, why would these things exist in the first place? How could they have survived evolution? Because it's not like they're, you know, there's, there's lots of silly mutations that go on that cause terrible illnesses, um, but they're, they're typically you know, less than 1% of the population, right? Like, but when we talk depression, anxiety, we're talking, you know, what, 20, 30, up to 50% of the population. And, and it's not little errors across our DNA. It's uh, the markers or the, the, yeah, the markers for these kind of things are spread across our, our, gene, our genome. So it's the, what it is, is to say, okay, um, in what situation, I mean, here's, here's kind of the question, the thought experiment, the, 
ask themselves. And I think anxiety is a really easy one to start with. In what situations would um, the traits that lead to anxiety, so threat detection, why, why would these, um, in, in what states would these have been beneficial to the uh, survival of a species? And we're not talking about happiness here, we're talking about the passing on of genes, right? So replication. Uh, and I think that's, a, that's actually quite an easy leap for a lot of people. It's like, well, threat detection, easy. You know, you, you pray, right? We know that we're on the savannah. Um, and so essentially what we've got is um, a, a smoke alarm in our body and mind, right? Um, which is always perceiving potential threats to our survival. And just like a smoke alarm, 99 times out of 100 or often 99, 999 times out of 1,000, it goes off um, when there's not an actual fire, an actual threat. Um, and so a lot of anxiety is, is, yes, it's actually wasteful, it's unnecessary. It's an imperfect system, but you know what? Um, it conferred enough of a survival uh, advantage for it to um, persist uh, as a species. Um, that's, that's kind of the easy leap. Uh, but 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 even in that, um, you know, explaining to people that um, uh, so psychiatrists who've kind of worked with this, who have said to people, you know, look, um, there's not actually anything wrong with you, right? You're not a you're not a broken robot, right? Um, you've got a your system is uh, is simply reacting to you essentially got a smoke alarm and it's going off a lot probably because it's, um, for whatever reasons, it's detecting a great deal of threats in, in the world. But the question is, to what degree are these threats real? And often, simply, that understanding for people can be quite helpful. Um, obviously, look, I've got to be really clear here. You know, once things are at a really severe stage, that kind of advice doesn't help, right? It's, it's too far past. But um, the next question, that, and the one that I, I found that kind of got me interested and in fact um, you know, was, was of interest to our mutual friend John Dobbin was um, like why would depression exist you know or, or let's 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 dial it back let's get rid of the clinical language and say low mood why would in what situations would low mood have delivered a evolutionary advantage to us as a species and we've had a perfect, there's a couple. Um, the first one would be a season, right? Like in winter. So before you even go there, you have to ask the question, well, what does that even mean? What does it even look like? What are the behaviors? Well, well in a lot of cases, it is withdrawing. It is a, a leadening of your, your body and you're feeling like I've been through this myself. I have felt this feeling. It is, it's, it feels symptomatic, like almost of getting the flu where you are just, You've got no energy. You're completely depleted of energy. Um, you don't want to talk to people. You don't want to go outside. You just want to curl up in a ball and hide and wake me up when it's all over. And that's, if you look at it from that perspective, it raises a really interesting question. It's like, okay, well, when would that be useful? The first one is seasons, right? Um, and we, so, so we know that animals hibernate. Um, we also know that in northern climes where they don't get enough sun, uh, thanks to vitamin D and what have you, people get seasonal affective disorder. Um, the other situation where it might have been advantageous is when there's not enough food or resources. Um, essentially, if you were, you know, you leave your cave and you walk out and you go hunting for a day, you, you know, go out picking berries or whatever, and there's no berries, there's no food. Uh, and you come back in and you go out the next day same thing, no food, but now there's more predators. Um, suddenly it's like at a certain point, what we're looking at is like, okay, it's not worth it. Stay inside, conserve energy, wait till this, you, your fight or flight is of no use here. You're now facing a situation that is um, an unwinnable situation that you can't win. So the brain's doing some maths and saying, hey, it's not worth it stay inside, let's wait till this all blows over. Um, and the third one, which I thought was quite interesting, this other key indicator, and there's a piece of research on, on, a, on a theory called D-pathos, which is, is that, um, you know, if you look at the single biggest killer of humans throughout history, 
it's disease, it's pathogens. Now we've all had a very, very good example of what is the general advice that has been given across the world in when there is a virus or a plague or a disease, what are we told to do? Stay indoors, lock down, don't go outside, don't talk to other people. Um, and so if you think about that from an evolutionary perspective, people would have, um, those people who would have sat inside and, and, and done all of that, um, may have, it only needed a few of them, but there would have been a, enough of them survive that so that it would have delivered a, an advantage. And so this behavior goes on. And so that's kind of the two main areas, but I, I guess I'd zoom out from this and say, do you know what's great about this? Um, it, there's a lot of conflict within the world of mental health. Like I'm, I'm looking at this going forward saying, okay, well, where do I want our business to be? What does the future of mental health look like? Um, I myself am looking at you know, avenues for study, right? And where should I go? And it's a minefield out there of um, different of people disagreeing across this is big disagreements about the medical model about the biomedical model, about whether, you know, are we over-medicated um, or people defending medication? And it's, it's so fractured um, and it, it's almost dismaying. And so what I liked about this theory is it's the first time in a long time I've ever come across a theory that instead of adding another more clutter to the table or pushing aside or trying to denounce others, it actually provides a bit of a lens through which we can view all other existing um, systems and lenses of, of understanding mental health uh, and provide us with uh, it kind of helps make sense of all the others um, yeah so that's that's why I'm kind of fascinated by it I, I, I want to look at that middle um, you, you mentioned three yeah so so mm. hibernation um, the, the the loss of food and resources and and, and, and increased threats and and mm. Um, and then the, the, the illness or, or escaping pathogens, but, uh, pathogens. But I want, I want to look at the second one because I think this is where uh, the construction of organisations and society and, and the, the modern mentality is quite interesting. Right. Because right. you're looking here at, uh, if I'm working, if, if I'm trying to be um, work for a, a bigger organisation or make my way in the world, there's a scarcity mindset for most people is, is there's not yep. enough jobs, there's not, there's not enough resources, there's not enough money, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And the other one is, well, because of that, you've got all these threats. You know, you've got 100, 200 people after the same thing that you want. So I just wonder if we're being overloaded by those, you know, the, the, the depression and anxiety is, is two, two responses to the overload of the system that we've constructed. Bingo. That's exactly it, Richard. Like, you know, the, the question would be asked is, are you facing an, un, do you feel like you are facing an unwinnable situation? I mean, take a look at what burnout is. Take a look at what people say. It's, you know, you have these discussions with people and it's this sense of this relentless torrent of work and communication that um, they, they feel like they're put in unwinnable situations or even like key mental health risk factors at work are issues like um, imbalance of reward, right? Demands and reward. Um, and so we're very sensitive to this. Uh, and the idea is that um, we also have an always on culture. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and you've got Instagram. So now you're also comparing yourself with the rest of the world. I mean, you used to have a tribe of 20 or 50 or 100. That's where our brain's at, right? Um, you go back to something like Dunbar's number and what is it, 150 people max, right? That would be the, the kind of max grouping size of a human based on our cognitive capacity um, that would be the maximum number of people you typically compare yourself to so where you are on that pecking order well guess what now it's global I mean you got to you could have a five you could have a five meter yacht and you'll be angry with the guy who's got you'll feel insignificant to the person with this 15 meter yacht and you know there's stories of billionaires wondering how they failed in life because you know they just didn't match up to um, you know multi-billionaires uh, and so uh, but going back to your original question, like this sense of overwhelm, like to what degree in organisations are we putting people in um, situations that feel unwinnable? Uh, and, are, yeah, that are triggering these primal 
responses in us. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's the unwinnable and the inescapable. Because I, mean, I, I won't mention the organisation, yes. but I was working for some people, working with some people and, and for helping them. And they were working for an organisation that would yeah. look fantastic on their CV if they'd been there for X amount of time. And it, it was killing them. And they all knew it was killing them. But they were like, yeah. I've got to keep on doing it. Because if I mm. if my CV shows that I've left this organization after six months, mm. people are going to think something's wrong with me. But the yeah. environment they were working in was unwinnable. I mean, they, they were never, yes. ever going to, to, to find any meaning and purpose in the, in the role. Yeah. Yeah. Look, and I think it, it speaks. A, look, I think your word trapped is, is a good one as well, because it, it, it also signifies this idea that, um, you know, it triggers that sense of learned helplessness. You only have to go, you don't have to go back far to the work of like Seligman and all the rest where they kind of, there's that famous experiment where they zap dogs. Um, can't do it, couldn't do it these days, but I think this was back in the 60s or 70s, but you zap dogs um, and normally they jump away to the area of the pen where there's no zapping. Um, but then after a while, um, if, if there's nowhere to escape to and you just keep zapping them, well, then they just lie down and just get zapped and they, whether the electricity is flowing or not. Um, and, and so there's a, there's a real interesting question there around, um, like, what does this mean for the future of work? We have an opportunity and COVID has been a big opportunity as well to shift our thinking and reassess things. Um, to, to, because I think there's been a, it's like, you know, it's that old school Taylorism and all of this where, where it's, we, we need to, um, standardize everybody right and and we, we measure everybody and we standardize everybody and we we put them down into a um a measurable box then um we will all be able to work efficiently as a large machine right um and even that kind of thinking's been predominant um in in psychology as well um and we, we talk about normal and abnormal psychology and all of this and you know uh, in in defense of psychologists, psychiatrists, they understand how sophisticated, complex and nuanced this is. I think it's the message gets lost on us, the public, that we tend to think of people as um, the old labels of sane and insane, right, have been replaced by normal, abnormal or uh, mentally healthy, mentally ill. Um, and all of this language traps us in this um, polar black and white worlds, when in reality, what we're looking at I think is a word that you may have heard, I'm not sure, is neurodiversity. Um, this idea that we need to stop trying to um, force narrow, um, we, we need to redefine what it means to have, to, to be a functioning human. Um, and part of that means accepting that there's a great variety in how our brains operate and who we are and all the rest. And so, yeah, okay. Uh, and, and if we start designing our businesses around that and planning our societies around that, I think um, we're not going to be fighting an uphill battle on, on mental health. Because I tell you what, for all the money, time and energy spent on mental health, we've done very little to move any of the key indicators over the last few decades. That's the reality. Things actually just keep getting worse. Like we've done the biomedical, we've done the chemistry, We've done the building resilience in individuals. We've done all of this, but more and more what we see is, is just that um, the evidence is coming through and through that it's actually a mismatch between us and our environment, which means um, how, we, how, we, how we structure our societies, how we incentivize and disincentivize things. And this goes down, trickles down into businesses the same. Um, we need to start looking upstream on these things and asking questions about, well, is this in line with what is good for humans or not? Because if not, then why the hell are we doing it? That would be my question. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Oscar, I want to let Oscar to have a question. I've got some, in, I've got some things I want to ask you, but I think Oscar's got, yeah. uh, we'll take this a bit further first. No, I mean, it, it, you, well, um, you spoke about um, a kind of broken system that we live in, right? So entering your environment. Uh, you mentioned a few times. Uh, um, do you mind to explain a little bit more how, how you plan to to kind of address this? Your yeah, right. So so here's the other little message from um, in psychology is like okay, so uh, uh, figure out what's in your control <clears throat> and what's out of your control. Um, <clears throat> so for us, sorry, I think I just missed to follow up, Bob. 
So I need some water. <clears throat> so, um, so at the organizational level, there's some interesting stuff that we're doing, but I actually thought um, without uh, uh, compromising too much confidentiality on this project, um, I think this is a really interesting one. So what we looked at is um, sociological, uh, a large scale intervention done on a population, a cohort of people, around 1600 mums and mums to be. Um, and this is something that's, you know, in planning, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's in planning plus it's in negotiation and it's, it's, it's a long process to get um, organisations behind, well, get governments and all the bodies involved. Um, but looking at postnatal depression, now you want to talk upstream, you want to, you know, think of generations ahead, well, then it requires interventions taking place. Um, the most upstream you could go would be to help mums, right? Because then you're going to, if you look at the impact that um, things like postnatal depression have on um, offspring um, and early childhood development and what that means for their life trajectories going forwards, it's huge. Not, not to mention what it means for the mums. Um, this is a fascinating project. We looked into it. Currently, the way the system works, I'm oversimplifying, but uh, I don't think it's too uh, uh, erroneous is to say. Uh, unfortunately, with something like postnatal depression, um, actually it goes for a lot of mental health. You know what? You actually got to be sick enough to use the service. Yeah, like you actually need to be sick enough to a clinical degree to actually be able to receive the supports that are currently on offer. So our thing was, okay, um, that's a problem because once people are in that state, there's a lot of lost time and, and a lot of damage done. Um, and it's a lot easier to turn that ship around a lot earlier. And so the question was, well, exactly how preventative can we be in this space? And so what we figured out, um, and, oh, and it, you know, wasn't, wasn't really me, it was uh, collaborating with some very smart people. And one of them is a guy who has spent his, dedicated his life to designing healthcare systems in one way, shape or form. He uh, helped us to design this system where uh, ultimately support would be, you would identify uh, support would take place well before the baby is born. So postnatal depression um, affects about one in seven mums, which is huge. And if you take a look at it, just step back, take a look at what it actually is. Like, okay, why would someone get depressed in a situation like that? Well, you know, well, let's say you're, you're isolated. Suddenly you're suddenly isolated, um, stressed out, sleep deprived, um, worried as hell about this new baby and all the responsibilities that come with it, all the money that's going to come, need to come with it. Um, we know that breaks people from, we know that from interrogation, right? How do you, how do you break a person, you know, deprive them of sleep for long enough and, and whispered doubts in their ears, and they will break. Um, it's an effective interrogation technique to break somebody. And, and so if you, if you look at that, you say, okay, well, in a lot of ways, these same things that's happening um, to moms, like, okay, well, how far back can you go before the baby's even born to empower them, to provide them with information, to um, provide them with support? Really interesting stuff, like, like to what degree we're just having a house help uh, a cleaner coming in once a week help. And again, none of what we do is prescriptive. It's actually a bit of a vehicle, a framework through which um, they are able to uh, develop and strategies and help emerges from within the population who needs it. Um, and a big part of it's also was discovered is, you know, help the dads because, you know, dads are struggling. They don't know how to help the mums and they're worried and, and all of this. So, um, if you ask me about like, where do I want the future of this to go? Like, what are we doing now? And where do I want to see the future of it to go? That's the kind of stuff that I'm really interested in. This pulling the levers on social determinants of mental health um, and less prescription, more emergence um, by actually listening to people and empowering the people at the other end. Um, so yeah. Um, so I, I want to take it a little bit further. Um, and, and you talked about Seligman earlier on, uh, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest that there are two, and you've also talked about binaries and dualities. I'm going to suggest there's two poles to the, the, the mental health crisis or the, the mm. challenge that we're facing. 
And, and a lot of what we've been talking about thus far, we've, we've been talking about the pathology of the wounded self, the depressed and the anxious and, and et cetera, et cetera, mm. and, and, and how we've got all of this language that, that um, demonizes the, 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 that kind of self. But I also think we have the pathology of the celebrated self. The, the the self that's absolutely perfect and amazing and successful and um and i i that's come out of positive psychology in seligman's work sadly yeah. and again it's 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 a poor interpretation of, of what they were trying to do so i just wonder if you if you've got any um oh, okay. methodologies <laughs> for that as well <laughs> okay so see see here's the thing if you look at at, at um any behavior any trait that goes on throughout evolution, it, it may be adaptive or may not be adaptive, depending on where you are, right? Depending on the circumstances. Now, think about this. Um, there's also, if you think of like a bandwidth, and we would say that there's, there's a healthy level of bandwidth through which our emotions should operate, right? Your threat, fear, response, and, and all the rest. Well, and if you exceed that, so, so if, if you go through one of those ceilings and you get, you know, anxiety or depression, right? Um, essentially, what we're saying is, okay, you're in an environment that's actually not threatening, but your your threat response is 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 locked on. It's it's spiraled out of control, and you could say the similar around low mood. And once it once it spirals beyond a, a critical threshold, you find yourself in this depressive, self perpetuating zone, right? Okay, you can flip that as well, right? If you're in a really dangerous situation and you're not scared, that too would be bad for evolution. So it's this interesting thing about um, if you take it from an evolutionary lens and you look back on it saying, hang on a minute, so what about all these base jumpers, right? <laughs> what about like, you know, 20 year old boys, you know, drinking, driving, motor, driving motorbikes without helmets late at night? Um, it is interesting that uh, uh, it's funny how we demonize negative, but all the positive stuff, it, it is such a thing to be overly positive. It could be maladaptive. You might be not scared enough as you healthily should be given your situation, um, or you might be uh, overly optimistic given your situation when there are real um, existential risks that you should think. And how many of us do that, right? Like. You, you kind of, oh, it'll be all right, it'll be all right, it'll be all right. And you kind of live, live in la-la land. And then reality, kind of sooner or later, you can, can kind of kick the can down the road and you know, pretend everything's okay. But sooner or later, you get reality comes along and slaps you upside the, slaps you upside the face. So um, that's kind of, again, dialing back to that evolutionary sign because it comes, it zooms out and it goes, hang on a minute, there's no... Um, uh, high mood and low mood are not necessarily correlate with good or bad. It is dependent, is context dependent. Um, and therefore, um, maybe we need to extend it and saying, you know what, these people are too happy <laughs> given their scenario uh, or they're, they're, they're too optimistic um, because they're, they're going to be reckless. Um, so, yeah. and, and that's what I see in some of this, I guess, uh, heroic leadership discourses that we see dotted around the place so so you see this this notion of the the hero leader and some politicians are, are like this uh, as well i mean overly optimistic uh, mm. uh, to the extent that all oh, covid will you know oh it's just a small illness mm. and it'll go away as if by magic mm. um or the, the the sort of the theranos scandal or, yeah, the right. we, or the WeWork collapse, where yeah. you had these pumped up Messiah kind of hyper-positivistic new age yeah. kind of leaders um, who, who were pathologically positive. Mm. Um, and, and look what happened. It, was, it, it, it made people working for the mill mm. um, and it cost investors billions of dollars. Yes. And well, you know, I, you know what I'd say? I'd say they weren't dealing with reality. I mean, this is kind of what it is. It's like, how do you make, it's like a poker game, Richard, right? It's, it's like, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of unknowns and a great degree of luck, both good and bad. But how do we make the best plays or the best, you know, 
play our best cards, play our best hands in life um, so that they can be as accurate as possible to the world around us. Um, and I think I, I would say that if you are, uh, the more in line with reality or the more realistic your understanding of reality, the better you are. And, and Or to flip that logic, the less realistic or the more unrealistic your, your or the distance from reality of your model, you're going to pay a price sooner or later. Because if you're not feeling the pain right now, it's um, you're getting away with it. But sooner or later, you're going to you know, you're going to have to reveal your cards. Um, but you know, it's like okay. So here's a good example of that. Like like uh, Elon Musk, massively irrational. Like 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 he took some huge risks and all the rest. The thing is, though, um, in someone like his case, like I don't know what he's like as a person and all the rest, but it's interesting that, you know, with a strong engineering background, there's always seems to be some kind of methodology behind the estimation of the possibility of something, um, as opposed to pure hope, dreams and hubris, which I guess is like a Theranos or a, a lot of the startup game, let's be honest. Mm. And this this will take me into sort of the some of the things you've been talking about or, or hinting about throughout. So earlier on, you talked about creating an in between space in 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 the work that you did, where you were having meetings in between work and home. You've also done that that with your hand. You talked about being in in the space between the celebrated and the wounded, and, yeah. and not too positive and not too negative. Um, and, and to an extent, drinking dialogues with Oscar and I run is about creating an in-between space for people who are dislocated in time and space at the moment and then are wanting to have these kind of meaningful conversations. Now, is, is, that, is that the answer? Do we, do we need to recreate the in-between spaces? Because work, workplaces and COVID between them have stripped them all away. We, we don't go to bars and cafes and, and restaurants yeah. and meet friends and, and in a in a in between kind of I'm not quite at work and I'm not quite at home I'm somewhere else workplaces have been designed to be totally utilized so there's not mm. so much opportunity to, to go and do that kind of work is that contributory and, and is it actually part of the solution um so there's kind of two things there that occur to me. One is this idea of an in-between space. Um, I think there's also another discussion there around uh, what are we if we're always online and geographically distributed, um, but never really together um, and not in the workplace. Like this whole rise of the hybrid workplace, it's fascinating. Um, Boston Consulting did a, an interesting report, um, and I know you've um, mentioned um, the Sandy Sandy Pentler, Pentland research on uh, the role of uh, interaction, small informal interaction, in terms of um, driving innovation. And, and actually, that Boston Consulting um, report had a, a similar kind of. Um, the findings echoed it. And what they echoed was this, they were studying like I think 12,000 employees um, across you know, experimenting with hybrid work. Um, individual productivity's up, collaborative productivity's down. Uh, and so I'm actually working with organizations right now about, okay, well, yeah, and also jealousy, like, <laughs> like the, the interpersonal dynamics that are kind of come out of this. Like we know from psychology that you hang around, if you're coming into the office every day and you're hanging around the boss and they see you, you're going to build trust. You're going to build rapport. They're going to, um, and that's going to feed into their decision-making process for promotions and who's going to get uh, brought in on meetings and information. Um, I will not be surprised if in six to nine months time, there's a whole bunch of people who feel really hard done by and slighted because they got left out of the loop, being punished from working from home. I don't think it's going to be, uh, well, I would say this, even if, it, uh, if it's not conscious, which it entirely could be, I actually think human cognitive biases will prevail. And um, I would, I would, I would put a, I'd put a hundred bucks down on the idea that um, you're going to see, um, people who hang out in the office more 
end up being treated more favorably than those um, who stay at home. And this is gonna cause huge headaches for staff dynamics, cultural dynamics in organizations. So um, we need, yeah, I, I think this hybrid, to answer your question, I mean, do we need the in-between space? Um, I mean, from that perspective, in terms of the hybrid, this is uncharted territory. And we, we can look at, it's just such a huge transition for a lot of people. Um, there's gonna be so many unknown emergent challenges that fall out of this that none of us see coming. Uh, we're gonna to have to play it as we go. Um, in terms of in-between in spaces, Yes, like I'm all about in between, in between spaces in terms of, um, because I myself, I, like I'm, I'm a generalist, I come from the world of biology and, you know, ethics and psych and education and just this whole world and, um, you know, if you actually have a look at the major breakthroughs that have been done in any fields, it's never the specialist savants who are the biggest contributors to their field. It's the people who connect disparate ideas and break down the silos. Those are the ones who have the monumental breakthroughs in, in knowledge and work and life and innovation. Um, we need more of this. Uh, we need more of this, not less of this. Um, and so my concern is this drive towards hyper-specialization. I'm also concerned about the removal of arts from um, a lot of components in 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 the education system in at least in higher education here in australia because uh there's the famous example of steve jobs going to a what was it a, a calligraphy class and then he got the idea for aesthetics um which helped dramatically in in their design but it goes beyond that like um we if we are to get an accurate picture of reality or to get an accurate picture of a problem you need to be able to walk around it in three dimensions. And this is why I'm a, a, I'm a huge fan of the rise of mental models in popular culture, um, because it helps people snap out of their thinking. Um, my own personal experience was, I only just started realizing a few years ago that not everybody looks at things as an ecosystem. <laughs> That was a huge wake up for me. It's like, oh, people don't think about the world as complex, dynamic, evolving systems. That's interesting. Obviously, it's just me growing up on a farm and then studying ecosystems and biology. Like that's how I ended up thinking like that. But I, I have other people who just they don't think like that. They think in terms of mechanistic machine wise. And um, it's not to say one's right, one's wrong, but what you need is a range of lenses through which you can view a problem so that you can get an accurate estimation of it because none of us have a monopoly on the truth. Um, and it does require knowledge sharing. Cool. And so I think, I mean, they've done some work and, and chats with uh, Aaron McEwen at Gartner in, in Sydney. And he, he he's very, very clear about their research showing that creative collisions don't happen without curation. So, so you know, that you've actually got to be looking at how, how do we how do we curate the experience so these collisions happen properly? Otherwise, you know, it doesn't happen just because you've, you know, you, you, you've, you've just determined that, that people are mm. going to walk past each other. There's, there's something more that needs to go on. Mm. So, right, so something I think intentional. That, yeah, something mm. intentional. So I think that that's a, a way we need to start thinking about it. I also, I mean, the stuff you were talking about, visibility work and, you know, um, the, the, the challenge of work from home, et cetera. I mean, I, I, when all of COVID happened, I, I, I read three PhDs about remote work. And it's like, well, no shit, Sherlock. They were saying this <laughs> five years ago, this was yeah. the problem. Um, the, the, yeah. the, the challenge that these haven't gone into the mainstream discourse around well, what, what the problems of hybrid work might and might not be and then you've, you've got social mm. isolation and all kinds of things to add on we sort of that that's sort of things that have popped into mind but i want i want to go into the final question which we ask everyone uh, and really the, the the way you've been talking is you sort of gone from well this this is the action that we're doing now to this is the you know if, if we could and i could put evolutionary psychiatry at the heart of my work um we'd do that 
So, so the, it's a nine trillion dollar question, as we as we term it, because we think that's how much money is getting lost through bad practices around the world. Um, if you could put evolutionary psychiatry at the heart of well-being for all organisations in the world, what would things look like? It's a really good question. That's a really good question. Here's the first thing it'd do. It'd normalise everything. It, it, and well, it'd normalise at least the, the the lion's share of mental health, right? Like at least um, at least depression and, and anxiety. If we can tackle those, and and even things like bipolar to a degree, right? Um, it would stop us thinking in terms of mentally healthy, mentally ill. We would start to get a much more accurate approximation on what's actually going on, which is that there's a spectrum and that we're on that spectrum and that we're all sliding on that spectrum. And maybe someone oscillates high and low, higher and lower. Um, we might, uh, I mean, think about how to change education. I always, okay, so, okay, here's another thing. It always bothered me as a teacher, right? Like I was a teacher for a long time in a high school. So, um, you know, they talk about ADHD, ADHD, ADHD. And I'm like, since when? Is it okay to ask students to sit still, like teenagers to sit still for 10, 12 hours a day? Plus you keep waking them up at dawn when we know that in late teenage years, like you, our, our, chrono, our chronological clock changes, right? Now, the evolutionary argument for that is that actually you want to have everybody in the tribe, someone at the tribe, awake throughout the night. Yeah, this is the idea. So it would make sense we'd have a rotating clock because you because you kind of uh, you're you're uh, you're spreading risk and you're increasing survivability by having some people get a good night's sleep and other people um, well they're deeper sleep but other people are a little bit more alert. It would make sense that we could you could imagine how that might evolve over time. Um, we, we see that kind of behavior replicated in ducks, okay? So anyway, we keep waking up teenagers at dawn and sending them to school. Um, bad idea. If you looked at it from an evolutionary perspective and there's evidence now showing and some schools are experimenting with this, it's like, yeah, once you're 16, 17, 18, man, sleep in, go to school at 10. What you see is like scores go up, kids are better behaved, right? Stop fighting human nature, um, start working with it. Um, we have technology now, this, this asynchronous communication that we can do. Um, we, it allows us, to, uh, allows us to be more flexible in how we operate and do a great deal of things as humans. And I think a great deal of suffering has been caused over the last century as a consequence of us trying to fit people into a very uniform way of operating, thinking, operating and thinking, which which is non not realistic and other people suffer. They can't handle it. So back to ADHD. Here's another interesting little experiment. Study back done in the 90s. Now, ADHD does seem to have a, a genetic component to it. So what they did was uh, East Africa, Kenya, if I remember correctly, um, and they studied a tribe uh, or people of a tribal group. Some of them lived in urban environments. Some of them lived in rural environments. Uh, and they looked for the ADHD marker. Now, what happened to these? They followed them over their lifespan. What happened to them in the cities? Well, they didn't concentrate very well at school. Therefore, they got bad grades. Many of them dropped out of school. Then they fell down the rungs of society. They couldn't get a job. They started feeling terrible about themselves. Many of them ended up on, on the street, suicide. Extremely poor mental health, ADHD. What happened out in the um, tribal in, in the in the tribes they were identified early as um, very alert and attentive um, they were valued they were promoted to essentially the head lookout and the scout for the tribe um, this is known as they kind of ADHD are kind of restless so what what does this mean well they keep moving the tribe on so that you keep finding new ground you don't ex exhaust your existing you know resources around you keep keep everyone going keep everyone moving you, you're on the eye out for threats you're also on the eye out for opportunities um, ADHD excellent mental health right 
and and so I just for me I think that's so instructive for how we think about neurodiversity and how we shape and do things so if, if I was to put you know this evolutionary psychiatry at the core of what we do just look at those alone just look at those two situations alone how might that change things Maybe we should be having more active classrooms. Maybe we should be letting kids go to school at late teenagers at that point. That alone would be huge. But then adults too, you know, we need to start looking at, stop trying to fight and prescribe what um, it means to be a human and how you need to operate. And instead start looking at to what degree can we permit more flexibility and adaptability in in the systems that we use because we've got technology now right and COVID's been a big force for change it's catalyzed a great deal of change let's capitalize on it right let's look at say okay how well how do humans operate good well then let's build the systems around that instead of the other way around which is we we build the systems and try and squeeze humans into them um, that's essentially what I reckon would that might come out of it well, you said it was a good question. That was a great answer. Thank you, Anthony. <laughs> thanks a lot, Anthony. It was a, a great hour to have you here. Uh, and Richard as well, thanks a lot for this. Uh, another Candice Crack. <laughs>